what's interesting for me about barbers and barbershops thinking about this quest for liberation is that you know these were everyday folk right who picked up a razor and tried to find a sense of economic autonomy but it's also through the nature of the barbershop a place where black men and women for sure could come outside of the surveillance of a larger white public to gain some larger political education. The Barbershop. It's where you go when you want to get a clean fade or just shoot the breeze. You can go there for a good debate or to freely express yourself in a world built to cut away your freedom. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. When you step into a black barbershop, it's often like stepping into a safe space. Physically, emotionally, and especially politically, men and women can step into this cultural institution to do all manner of things that are specific to the black community. And it's shielded from the eavesdropping of the larger public. But you might not think about the role barbershops play in the black economy, and it is an important one. To help us understand both the politics and economics of black barbershops, we're sitting down with Quincy Mills. Quincy is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland. He teaches courses in 20th century black history, particularly business and political history. In 2013, he authored the book, Cutting Along the Color Line, Black Barbers and Barbershops in America, which we'll get into later. Currently, he's working on a new book called The Wages of Resistance, Financing the Black Freedom Movement. But first, let's get into our history story about the dangerous political work of one black barbershop. The people stood horrified as smoke and ashes hung in the air. The smog's weight made it feel hotter outside than it was in the small rural town of Blue Cane, Mississippi. Eugene Smith paused. Was the coast clear? He looked around and slowly pushed in the door of his barbershop, whistling long and low. Eugene put his hand on the 45 in his waistband and waited. Three of the Jennings boys, followed by their father, tipped out from the storage closet. Reverend Jones, Principal Brown, and two church deacons came from the bathroom. Finally, Doc Taylor, the owner of the only black pool hall within 20 miles, walked in from the back alley. Several other men followed him. Everyone knew the KKK was gonna do something. After all, it wasn't every day black people tried to register to vote. The men already expected the Klan to burn a few crosses, tramp mules through the cotton fields, and shoot a few hunting dogs in retaliation. But none of that was their plan tonight. 
they had a different target. Instead, the small group of white lawyers, cops, and farmers burned the church in the center of the black part of town, which also doubled as a school. Everyone inside escaped, with the exception of one small girl, Principal Brown's youngest. She suffocated, fighting her way out of the flames. She had come with her mother and brothers, there to set up for the voter registration breakfast that was supposed to happen that day. No one knew that breakfast wouldn't be coming in the morning. With their broken hearts burning, even hotter than the Klansmen's torches, the men laid hands and prayed over Principal Brown in the one space as sacred to them as a church, a place where they could laugh or talk about their favorite Negro League, a place where they could cry and lean on each other for healing. This sacred place, Eugene's Barbershop. What does Black liberation look like to you? Oh, there you go. Let's get right out the gate here. <laughs> black liberation, for me, first and foremost, is different from, from freedom. And I start there because I'd argue much of the study of African-American history has been the study of Black people's quest for freedom. Uh, and discussions of freedom are usually discussed in the realm of citizenship and rights and the nation state and it's sometimes integration but as malcolm certainly malcolm and james baldwin reminds us that it makes no sense to want to integrate into a burning house and to be clear that burning house is certainly america and to fight for freedom uh to gain the same kinds of rights as white folks doesn't quite hit the mark of what freedom really is, or particularly what liberation could be. And so when I think about liberation, I first and foremost think beyond the nation state. I think beyond uh, uh, the ways in which democracy has been conceived. I think more centrally toward the human condition, human rights, if you want to be more formal about it, though I'm not trying to tap into the UN particularly, but there are certain certainly ways in which there are certain expectations uh, and endowed rights of humanity, right? So having a living wage, having access to healthcare, right? To be able to care for oneself and one's family, um, having a sense of having a certain knowledge about how humanity operates, if you will. Um, and so when I think about liberation, I think about breaking free of chains that American democracy sort of lulls us with to say that if we can just get to this more perfect union, then everything will be fine. But I think even the perfect union is uh, in the ways which we have conceived of it is problematic in and of itself. And so liberation, I think, is about sort of unlocking our minds in a certain kind of way 
and imagine uh, uh, a completely, completely, completely new world where, you know, I don't, I don't have to earn a certain amount of money in order to have health care. I don't have to earn a certain amount of money or take on a certain amount of debt just to further my education. Liberation is all encompassing and certainly even my discussion here barely scratches the surface. But I would say that's, that's where I would start. I like the way you put that, breaking free of the chains that American democracy lulls us with. What models do you look to as we're thinking about how we can imagine what liberation looks like? So I am currently there's a there are some really wonderful folk contemporary activists who are act who are organizing around what they've been calling a solidarity economy and it's it's an idea that's centered on mutual aid or benefit um, and it's funny so I just this past semester a student asked asked the question class how can you get liberated from capitalism and I didn't I didn't that question I didn't have I didn't have a solid answer but what I began with in terms of the answer was well being liberated from capitalism and I think this is what the solidarity the solidarity economy movement is trying to do is to find alternative ways of being and living Right. And so, for example, uh, cooperatives are certainly central to that. Uh, and we can certainly look at uh, the cooperative movement throughout the 20th century. W.E.B. Du Bois spoke eloquently and wrote about black cooperatives in the 1930s. And certainly during the Depression, uh, this was the time. Right? It's usually the sort of moments of the crises in capitalism where where progressive folk began to think of not relying on a capitalist economy. Um uh, but I would say the more progressive of the folk, right, try to think beyond capitalism, even when capitalism is doing well, so to speak. I, I would argue that capitalism doesn't always, doesn't never does well because it relies on people being exploited in order to do well. Nonetheless, I've heard from folk who are living cooperatively, for example, right. So instead of one person, you know, buying the house or, you know, trying to save up 20% of $500,000 that they're going in together and living cooperatively. I've heard of, uh, of folks, instead of seeking out a bank loan for a house, that they're doing something akin to crowdsourcing, right? So that's just an example of the kind of model, right, That is that says that we're not we don't have to sort of buy into what's in our face, but that we can, again, think otherwise. And that's just one example, but, but, but one example about a kind of model that can have us, again, finding alternatives that can certainly liberate us from what we think is impossible, which is, how, you know, how, how can you live in a capitalist system but not succumb to capitalism? That's damn difficult to answer, right? Many of us of us have cell phones. Even this conversation that we're having, I'm having through my laptop. Uh, many many folk have to purchase a laptop, so we have to participate in the capitalism in some capacity. And so we're all kind of complicit in it through the nature of consumer capitalism. But does it have to be that way? Do I need the iPhone, or do I just simply want the iPhone? Right. And so I think it's it just. It's it's going to take courage, frankly, um, um, for us to to begin to think otherwise. I appreciate that. So imagining or seeing what's impossible, or what we think is impossible, and figuring out ways, alternatives to approach that as a collective. Mm -hmm. um, in what ways does your work contribute towards 
pushing our community towards liberation. And for the context of this conversation, um, definitely want to get deeper into your work around barbershops. Yeah. So I my my first book is the history of black barbershops um, in the 19th and 20th centuries. It's titled Cutting Along the Color Line, Black Barbers and Barbershops in America, published in 2013. Um, and first, I, I will sort of say that I am I am not naive in thinking that my scholarship in and of itself is a liberatory act or that it is an example of activism per se. I do, though, sort of follow the Carter G. Woodson model of thinking about the uses of education. Uh, and I think even Malcolm once said, if I get this quote right, of all of our studies, history is, is, is the most useful, right? It's to say that the work itself doesn't do anything. It's about what folks who read it do with it. <laughs> So my first book on barbers, one of the one of the things I wanted to, to engage in that book was to think about barbers and barbershops outside of usual conversation about barbershops being places where black men can go and hang out and talk and debate and argue and so forth. Um, I don't think every barbershop is like every black barbershop is like that, but I think we can certainly say that most of them are. And historically, that was the case. Certainly through the 20th century. But what was missing for me, since I started here by talking about capitalism, what was missing for me in our conversations about barbershops uh, is that we seldom talk about the business of the barbershop. <laughs> it's almost like these are just sort of public spaces like parks that are nonprofits that folks can go and hang out. And no, <laughs> right? these are businesses. And if that sh barbershop doesn't make any money, it's not open the next day or the next month for folks to come in and talk and hang out and debate and argue and so forth. And so I was curious sort of how can we sort of think about the market economy inside this public space, right? Um, uh, uh, were these sort of profit-making businesses, right? So the answer to that question is initially yes, actually, but it was transformed into something quite different, something that we actually are familiar with now. So very quickly and briefly, in the 19th century, a majority, if not all, of the commercial, of the Black-owned commercial barbershops, so barbershops that are operating in downtown business districts, right, for the public, their clientele was white. Wealthy white politicians and businessmen, even to the extent that they did not allow black consumers to come in to get shaves or haircuts in their shops. This was the order of the day in the 19th century, but I should say sort of before the 1890s. And so these were, look, this was about profit. And the reason that that these decisions were made was because white folk didn't want to be shaved next to a black man who was being shaved, didn't want to be shaved with the same razor that touched a black man's face. And so they made these requests. They weren't requests, I would argue demands, right? Uh, and Black barbers succumbed to those requests, right? What's interesting here, though, right, is that, you know, Black communities actually protested against who, you know, what they call color line barbers for drawing the color line in their shops. So what was clear was that Black communities expected those barbers. They, they expected more of these barbers, but they also expected something of the barbershop. Um, and so that's what I find quite fascinating. And so that's to say, for me, 
And I don't mean to sort of cast these 19th century black barbers aside to say that these were just sort of money-making, profit-generating folk, because these were some of the same folk who opened up their barbershop, their doors after hours during when, you know, folk were running from slavery, right? So they weren't always sort of official sites on the Underground Railroad, but at times, right, when someone was running and they looked inside and they saw that this is the Black man's shop, they asked if I can hide out for the night before I have to go. Um, uh, barbers were also very active in abolitionist circles. They were very active in raising money for the abolitionist movement, active in politics. So they were active in Black communities, even though their shop did not reflect that. Alonzo Herndon in Atlanta founded um, Atlanta Life Insurance Company. John Merrick in Durham, North Carolina founded North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company. Both, again, these are two very prominent middle-class, very wealthy Black barbers whose shops were, again, exclusively patronized by white folks. Uh, They used that money, frankly, right, in service of Black communities elsewhere, right? So it's complicated and interesting. Nonetheless, I think what's useful, again, to get back to your original question, I sort of see this study and this book about barbers and barbershops as saying, you know, like these were everyday folk, right, who picked up a razor and tried to find a sense of economic autonomy because that was a lot easier than obviously being a sharecropper, that was preferable, uh, uh, or uh, doing wage work, right? But having some sense of economic autonomy, and sometimes, yes, that was being an entrepreneur, and indeed being a Black entrepreneur at this moment in history meant that they were dealing with a less than free market economy. And so what's interesting for me about barbers and barbershops, thinking about this quest the liberation is that, you know, we're thinking about money here. Again, this is an industry with very few barriers to entry uh, that black that black men could escape wage labor to find some economic autonomy. But it's also through the nature of the barbershop, a place where black men and women for sure could come outside of the surveillance of a larger white public, which was unique. Right. So there are only uh, sort of a few public spaces like that. The church is certainly one of them. Fraternal societies also. But in terms of spaces that don't come with membership requirements that a church would or a fraternal society would, the barbershop was that unique space. And so what we know is that uh, Black communities sort of used and benefited from barbershops as spaces where they can think, where they could organize, where obviously they can get transformed through getting a shave or a haircut. And so uh, that's the way that I think about barbershops in this way in respects to, again, this larger quest for liberation. So when you're, you're doing this work and uncovering these stories, you know, how conscious were these barbers in exercising, you know, what you're describing with the economic autonomy and being able to hold this space outside of the surveillance? Were there conscious efforts that went with this, or is it sort of a nature of how things were done? So I will answer this two ways. Um, Historically, so the barbers who were have long passed on, right? The barbers who, who I only know through historical sources. So, you know, before the 1950s, those barbers certainly did understand the significance of 
of of their shops during the depression, um, for example, during the civil rights movement, for sure, um, where they understood that, again, these sort of private spaces in the public sphere, right, where these spaces were necessary, not only for organizing, but also for gaining and sharing some larger political education. So the Chicago Defender, for example, often they they place their newspaper inside of barbershops. Uh, barbers who were active and activists would often leave literature on the Communist Party or other leftist movements inside their barbershops to engage and to talk. So again, right, there, I, I can't think of other spaces where one could randomly walk in for something like to get a haircut and to get something else like a political education, right? Stokely Carmichael, right, talked about who's when he and his family were living in, they were living in the Bronx, New York. And he uh, tells a story in his autobiography about his father taking him to an Irish barbershop in the Bronx and the Irish barber uh, refused to cut his hair. And so his father began to take him to Harlem, to a barbershop in Harlem to get his haircut. And Carmichael relayed that it was in that Harlem barbershop that he learned about the Brown v. Board of Ed decision, where he learned about movements in Africa, right? Where he, again, got his, his, his education for liberation right inside this barbershop. But that's not why he went. <laughs> but that's what he got when he, while he was there. Um, I think, yes, many barbers understood that. At the same time, and again, no, there's no monolithic Black community. There's no monolithic Black barbering community. Uh, so interesting story, and I'll try to be quick and concise here. I went to interview barbers in Atlanta and, and Durham who owned or worked in a barbershop any time before 1970. At the time, I had fairly long locks that came down to my waist. Um and I expected the the jokes and the jabs, and I expected for someone to pull me inside of the chair, right, to try to cut my hair. Um, uh, I, what I did not expect was that they would be hesitant to talk to me, uh, or quite frankly, refuse to talk to me. So one barber said, you know, how does it look that you want to talk to me about barbering? You haven't cut your hair in, in I don't know how long. Another barber said, I'm in the grooming business and you don't look groomed. And I said, well, you know, you've kind of sort of seen this you know, in the 60s when folks were growing their Afros and naturals. And because I was trying to, I was trying to bring in the political angle. And so this barber said, yeah, and then damn it put us out of business. Right. <laughs> which, which said to me that, you know, but what these barbers were telling me was that, yeah, the politics is cool and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I take great pride in making black men look a certain kind of way. And you don't look that certain kind of way. You don't look like you're going to get a job with all that hair. You don't look like a man with all that hair <laughs> coming out of your head. You wow. know, how are you going to get a date? Hi. And so <laughs> there was a whole lot there. But again, like, I don't, I'm not, there's no, I wasn't upset. It was, it was, it was a revelation for me, right? Because it said that, look, these were folk who took pride in their certain profession of grooming a race of men. And sometimes politics didn't quite fit in that vocation. And so there's a way in which I think, yes, there's some barbers who certainly understand, I think certainly now for sure, many barbers who understand um, the nature of their space and the power uh, of their position and their shops, particularly, right, because there's an intimate connection that barbers have with their patrons and their customers. 
many times a barber will see two or three generations of the same family come through that shop. They see, you know, kids grow up in the neighborhood, right? So many barbers understand their centrality as institution builders in their communities. And yes, some see this as simply a job and a profession. And that, and at times, right, they, I, I would argue, right, it's possible for them to fall into a capitalist mode of saying, how can I make the most money here at this shop? So some barbershops, some barbers and barbershops certainly understand that, they're, that they are indeed institutions and not just places. And I would argue others are looking for the next entrepreneurial sort of bent here that can move the industry in certain kinds of ways. So really interested in this concept of having a space to have conversations outside of surveillance of the the larger system. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about why it was important back in the day and today and forward, especially, you know, when it seems to be the trend that people want to make a Twitter account and put all their (laughs) ideas and plans online, you know? So um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So first, historically, that pri- those private spaces were important because you just got to plot and plan. <laughs> you can't plot and plan in the park. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I mean, folks were up against the odds in the 30s and 40s and 50s, right? Uh, and certainly before that. And so being up against the odds, right, people's lives depended on that privacy, right? Because white folks were just, they were just ruthless with reprisals. Um, so having those sort of private spaces were important, but also, you know, these are also spaces where, you know, spaces where black men could reclaim a sense of their dignity. Uh, uh, when I say reclaim, I mean, when they were at work, um, their dignity was stripped from them. Uh, when they were walking down the street, their dignities were stripped from them having to tip one's hat or walk on the other side of the street with white person was coming down. Like, those kinds of things were humiliating, but being able to sort of have, but having a space like a barbershop, certainly there were other spaces too, but having a space like a barbershop to, to not have to think about all that, to not have to wonder, you know, what's going to happen if I knock this white dude's head off, right? Uh, I mean, those were moments of healing. Those were moments, I mean, we talk about mental health uh, uh, a great way now, but those were moments of them gathering their mental health, <laughs> going to that barbershop on Saturday morning. Those were important. And so historically, I think that's why these spaces were critical. Today, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the publicness seems to have taken the order of the day. And I would argue that's and this goes back to my earlier comment about thinking otherwise, about thinking about alternatives and about moving outside of the realms of democracy, so to speak. So Facebook, for example, many argue that it's, it's the Facebook democratizes public conversations. You, some might make the same arguments about Twitter, right? That everybody can sort of be a part of a conversation, right? Well, Facebook makes this money, <laughs> It's free, but it ain't free. Our data, ourselves, right? We pay for Facebook with ourselves. We pay for Twitter with ourselves, with our data. And so, sure, we might be having these very passionate political conversations about Black liberation, but I got to tell you, 
that's commercialized because it's on Twitter. <laughs> Let's be quite frank. And what we learned, say, from the Black Liberation Army from the 1960s, and to be clear, it's because of the Black Liberation Army that Asasha Kaur, right, gained her liberation outside of the United States, right, where she is now in exile in Cuba. But it was the Black Liberation Army that was underground, right? Underground. These were folk who were living underground. And to be clear, underground was often quite also simultaneously above ground. It was folk who were sort of moving about the world in a very inconspicuous way, right? That we don't have to be out front, that we can actually, it might be better not to be out front. To get to your initial question about how, like, what does liberation mean and look like, part of that is probably taking a step back, right? That maybe we don't want to talk about the protests that we're about to organize on Twitter. Yeah, we can get a larger network that way, but maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's another way to tap into that network that's not as public, that's not as commercial. Um, but there are other folk who are listening, clearly, right? Who maybe you don't want to be listening or watching and looking at the tweets. And so, yeah, I think, you know, barbershops, again, for example, I tend to argue that before there was Facebook, there were barbershops, right? These were the places where folks went to talk and have these you know, sort of grand community conversations in a very organic way to see what was going on in the neighborhood and so forth, to talk about the news. And and we are moving away from that, sadly. I think even inside of barbershops, as more barbershops elect to have to be organized by appointment, that means that there are fewer people inside a, a respective barbershop because you just come, my appointment's at three, I come at three, I get my haircut and I leave. Um, again, that might be more efficient, and certainly during COVID, that was necessary, but we're also losing something. We're, we're losing that, that potential for community engagement and connection that would be necessary and foundational for any talks or ideas of liberation. So right now, community is virtual, and I think that's, that's problematic. Efficient, but problematic. Well, you're describing something that I've I think noticed, but wasn't quite able to name when you mentioned the point about appointments. I remember when I was younger, just being in the barbershop, you know, I might have to wait for 45 minutes, an hour, uh, and you'd see a variety of folks coming in and out, hear different conversations, be part of different conversations. It's always that one one dude that's just there all day, just hanging out. Um, <laughs> no doubt, and no doubt. With that, though, it's like um, now you're absolutely right. I'll go to the shop at my usual time. I see the same two or three people before behind me, not really a good mix of folks. And there's not a whole lot of opportunity to exchange ideas in the same way. Reflecting on that, it's like, you know, back in the day, it was like, oh, man, I wish they did appointments. This would be so much better. Now it's like, obviously, there's something that's being something you're missing out on. You got it. You got it. Wow. Okay. It seems like there might still be some kind of hope, though. I mean, I don't see any path right now to replacing that with the app, right? People can order the groceries online, their food, they can date online, but I'm not sure how technology is going to affect barbershops more outside of, you know, maybe setting appointments online. Do you have any any projections uh, for the for the future of barbershops or how, what we can do to maybe reclaim or preserve those elements that I think would be beneficial as we're trying to continue to build? Yeah, so you're right. Folks will all will, will still need to go to a well. Folks can cut their hair themselves, and I think many people have begun to to sort of do that. 
But I think that there, there will always be a market for people to go to a barbershop to get their hair cut, for sure. Um, sure, there's some, you know, I think there's barbers who are starting to travel. Again, this happened during COVID. So I think some of the things that happened during COVID are going to continue post-COVID, if that is a thing or will be a thing, the post-COVID idea. And so, but I, 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 I do fundam- fundamentally believe that barbershops will, will, will survive because folks will still need haircuts for sure. And going to a shop, I think, will be the order of the day. I do also believe that barbers will have to be very intentional about situating themselves and their businesses and their shops in their respective communities and within history. And if they can do that, then I think that that's where the hope is, right? Because there's already been some really wonderful work from others who are tapping into what I call the sort of waiting public inside of barbershops, right? The folks who are sort of sitting in the waiting chairs and are there to hang out or waiting to get their hair cut, right? So there are very many health organizations that are partnering with barbers because they realize that in order to, say, convince or encourage Black men, for example, to get hypertension tests, right? Or to, or to get the vaccine, that they have to connect with people that these men trust. And who's that? their barber (laughs) right there's a wonderful brother from arkansas who has this mental health project where he's partnered with barbers to train the barbers in mental health to be mental health advocates so i so so there are many folk who are partnering who, who who understand and see the value in these in these spaces and they're partnering partnering with barbers what's going to be critical i would argue and this isn't sort of happening right now and i hope to assist in some capacity. I think that Barber Colleges is a wonderful space to get young and young and up and coming barbers, right? Folks who are entering the profession to think about the wonderful possibilities that they can have in this profession and in their communities. Right now, Barber Colleges, it's a, it's a trade school, right? Learn how to cut, take, you take your exam, and then you, and then that's it. Right. And so the college part of barbering is really just about learning how to cut hair and, and, and all the things that come with it. It's not about a grander sense of history, of purpose, of possibility. And I think that if, you know, and as, as an educator and a historian of barbershops, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and thinking that barber colleges could be sort of wonderful incubators for helping young Black folks, men and women, right, think about the ways in which they can transform communities through their work. just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit Black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about Black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. 
Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Leslie Taylor Grover, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Garciella Melotesi, Zane Murdoch, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace. <laughs>